Welcome back for those of you who've been before. Welcome for the first time uh, for those of you who are coming for the first time. Um, we've talked in previous lectures about the evolution of microbes, and in the last lecture we talked about how microbes can make some really impressively large structures. Tonight what I want to do is, is go to the other extreme and talk about some of the really small structures uh, that microbes make, and in particular the single molecules, the chemicals that they produce. And what I want to try and convince you of uh, in the next few minutes is that actually microbes are better chemists than anything we have ever created as humans. Um, some of those products they make are remarkably important for us. Uh, some of them are remarkably disastrous for us. Uh, and perhaps in the future, some of them will be the solution to some of the biggest problems uh, that we face today. Uh, but I'm going to start this lecture with a topic that is close to my heart, and I suspect many of your hearts, uh, which is that of food. Um, because food, at its first essence, is, of course, just chemistry. Um, some really interesting chemistry. Um, and it's probably no surprise uh, to all of you listening that microbes are a really important part of producing human food. Uh, in fact, we consume them every day, whether we like it or not, in many of the foods we have. Uh, sometimes that's not so good when they cause food poisoning. Uh, but what I want to talk about today is how they do some of the really beneficial chemistry that is so important for uh, human diets. <clears throat> And at its heart, food for all organisms is all about energy. The unifying feature of anything that is alive uh, is that it needs energy to survive, to do the things it needs to do, to replicate, to move, um, to do all the interesting behaviours that we associate with uh, microbes and large organisms. And that energy production is central to the existence of all cells. And uh, so I'm going to start with a little bit of real chemistry, some chemical equations, I hope not too terrifying. Um, uh, for those of you who are not chemists, uh, I, I'm hoping you'll still get it. Uh, those of you who are chemists, I apologise already that this is very dumbed-down chemistry, but hopefully uh, it will make sense to everyone. So energy in all its forms uh, comes from the food we consume, and, and that food can be uh, a whole variety of things. So for us, it's genuine food. It's the things we eat, breakfast, sandwiches, whatever. If you're a plant, it's ultimately sunlight, it's photosynthesis that drives energy. If you're one of the uh, chemolithotrophic microbes that eats rocks, it's the chemical substance in the rock itself that you're using for your energy. But regardless of the original source of that energy, what all organisms do is convert it into uh, something that can be used in their cells. And, and quite interestingly, that something is essentially the same for pretty much all living organisms. <clears throat> so if you're a human, um, or another animal actually, uh, your, your food that you, you take in is something that has energetic value that you can break down. And so um, as my example today, I'm going to take sugar. And in fact, uh, I'm being very economical today. I have only a single prop, but I'm going to use it lots of times. So here is my, uh, my bag of sugar. I'm going to plop that on there. Um, and sugar, or higher energetic forms, so carbohydrates, bread, whatever it is, uh, contains carbon hydrogen and oxygen. And I'm going to do a little bit of uh, chemistry here on this uh, hastily assembled whiteboard. So, so at its heart, sugar is essentially three sorts of atom. It's carbon, it's hydrogen, and it's oxygen. Uh, and I was going to say you have to remember that. You don't have to remember it because I've just written it here. Uh, <clears throat> and so if you take uh, sugar like this, this is sucrose, obviously, that you put in your tea. Um, this is actually what's called disaccharide. It has two sugar molecules stuck together. 
Here, for simplicity, I'm showing only one of those. Um, and very loosely, it's drawn as a hexagon because a single monosaccharide sugar, a single sugar unit, contains six carbons, six of those carbon atoms I mentioned there. So you can imagine your carbons in the six corners of this sugar. That's a gross oversimplification, but I'm hoping you're going to go with me on it. So if you're a human, you consume sugar or some form uh, like it. Um, and then to turn that into useful energy, you have a critical second component that we all need, uh, which is oxygen. Okay? And essentially, what we're doing in our cells all the time is burning the food we eat. Not like you do in a fireplace, uh, but in a very similar sort of chemical reaction. You are reacting uh, that input energy with oxygen to produce waste products and energy. And the kind of energy you create, or you produce from that food, uh, is a molecule called ATP, or adenosine triphosphate. And the really interesting thing about this molecule is this is what is referred to as the universal energy currency. And, and you can think about this in the same way that you think about finance, right? So all of us have need of finance. You, you might earn a salary, you might have a pension, you might have the bank of mum and dad, uh, you might have a pot of gold coins that you discovered at the bottom of your garden, lucky you. Um, but whatever form you have, you receive your money in, it is worthless at that point. It only becomes worth something when you convert it to a universal currency that other people understand, right? Uh, so that might be the pound or the dollar, it might be coins, whatever it is. It is something that you can take to a shop or a bank or wherever, and the person receiving it understands the same value from it. ATP is the cellular equivalent. It doesn't matter whether you eat beef burgers, you have photosynthesized, you break down rocks, you convert the energy into this single currency, and now that currency can be used by essentially almost any biological process in any cell. So this is really important. <clears throat> that process of breaking down whatever we've eaten to ATP generates a waste product, just like when you burn stuff in a fire, you generate a waste product in smoke. And the waste product, in this case, is water and carbon dioxide. And I think you can see here where the chemistry comes in, because uh, what is the chemical form for water? Can I pick on somebody? You sat at the front, I'm going to pick on you. Do you know the chemical form for water? H2O. H2O, very good. Okay, so, so water is H2O, so you can immediately see, I hope, that your waste products here contain carbon and oxygen, so you've got these two here, and water, which is these two here. So you've used up all of your input into these things here. The other thing you've done is you've taken this six-carbon molecule and you've broken it down essentially into single-carbon molecules, the C of CO2. So you've burnt your sugar into CO2. Right, that's all the really hard chemistry done. So you can leave now if you're a big chemistry nut. Uh, and if you're not, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, because the reason for dwelling on this purpose is that it leads to some very interesting predictions when you look at other microbes. Because we, and many other organisms, are strict aerobes. We can only survive, we can only do this process in the presence of oxygen. In fact, if I was to deprive oxygen from all of you in this room now, uh, the consequences would be quite swift and pretty irreversible. Um, and, and we all know what they would be. Because we cannot live without oxygen, and many organisms are like that. But not all. There are lots of organisms, particularly some microbes, that don't need oxygen, at least not all the time. And that raises the interesting question about what they then do to convert whatever form of energy they take in into ATP. So what do you do when you haven't got oxygen around? And it turns out there's some very interesting chemistry you can do there, and it's chemistry that's really relevant to us. 
So what you're still aiming to do is create this universal ATP. But you haven't got oxygen. Just like when you're trying to burn a fire with a relatively limited amount of air, those of you who have a, a fire at home, you know that if you kind of shut down the air source, the fire gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And if you remove all oxygen, if you put a lid on your candle, uh, it will go out because there's no oxygen. In this case, if there's no oxygen, just like that fire burning in the absence of very much air, you produce less energy. So you do, you produce ATP, but less. So some microbes in the absence of oxygen can switch to this pathway. This would not work for humans. We're too energy dependent because we need a lot of this. But if you're a microbe, some sorts of microbe, you can get away with less ATP. And I can give an example. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, adenosine triphosphate. Uh, there's no test at the end, though. It's a, it's a, yes, the question was, what does it stand for? ATP is adenosine triphosphate, um, which I'm not going to draw up because it's a complicated molecule. So this process in humans of converting energy into ATP is happening all the time. And it's happening, actually, at a rate that is quite um, extraordinary. So in the time I've been talking, which is about 10 minutes, according to that clock at the back, each of you in this room have probably produced about half a kilogram of ATP in your body. So that's about half this bag of sugar I showed earlier. Um, and you've burnt almost all of that in other processes straight away. You're permanently creating ATP and destroying it to power all the things that you're doing, like hopefully listening to me, um, or perhaps checking your phones or whatever else you're doing. Um, and that process happens all the time. So the average human being creates and destroys their own body weight in ATP every day. Okay. So we can't survive with a process that's inefficient at producing ATP like this one because we wouldn't make enough. But if you're a microbe and you have the opportunity, for example, to grow very slowly or be, go dormant, you can get by using a process like this that doesn't create as much ATP, an anaerobic process, one that, that occurs in the absence of oxygen. But there's an interesting byproduct here, because I said in the previous slide that what we do is we break down all those carbons in that sugar molecule, essentially to single carbon atoms in CO2, okay? So we're taking six carbons and we're turning them into individual carbon uh, dioxide molecules. You can't do that if you haven't got oxygen to spend, because you haven't got enough oxygen around to break this down completely into CO2. So you have to produce some other kind of waste product instead, a fermentative product. And this is where it becomes interesting for us. Because many of those microbes produce fermentation products that are actually really useful chemicals. Um, well, useful is perhaps an interesting question. Uh, because one of them, of course, uh, is the, a product that is very close uh, to our hearts as humans, uh, which is the product of ethanol. So if you are an organism uh, like uh, yeast, for example, you can take your sugar source in the absence of oxygen, you can produce ATP, and you can't fully break down to individual CO2 molecules. You can make a few CO2 molecules, but you haven't got enough oxygen to turn all of this into only CO2. You're left with some carbons, and so you're left with a molecule that has more carbons in it than CO2, and in this case, it's ethanol, alcohol, which has two carbons. That fermentation product that fermentation process helps your yeast grow in the absence of oxygen, uh, but is very useful for us, particularly in the product, production of those foods that I mentioned early on. Because this guy, this is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the brewer's or baking yeast, is really good at doing this fermentation process. It grows very happily in the presence of oxygen, but if you withdraw oxygen, it can still grow, and it produces this fermentation product 
of ethanol and CO2. And both of those products actually have turned out to be really useful for humans because, for example, if you put this organism with things like hops and grains and so on and so forth, you can make it ferment them into beer or wine or whatever else. The alcohol enters the drink, which is, of course, part of the point, and the CO2 bubbles through it to give it the froth which many of us enjoy. If you put it with other grains in a drier environment, it will start to grow fermentatively. It produces ethanol and CO2. The CO2 bubbles up in your dough to leaven it, to make it light. And then, of course, you put your dough in the oven, you burn off the alcohol, which is why we don't get all drunk when we have a, a sandwich. Um, but nonetheless, the, the product, this light, fluffy bread, is produced by fermentation. So this process done by a, a fungus is critically important for much of the food industry. Not all organisms that can grow without oxygen, they produce ethanol as their byproduct. There are other interesting byproducts. Um, and this organism here, this is Lactobacillus, a bacterium, can also do fermentation. Just like Saccharomyces, the fungus I mentioned, it doesn't have to. It can grow in the presence of oxygen, no problem. But if you withdraw oxygen, it continues to grow. Again, once again, harnessing sugar, producing less ATP than it did when oxygen was around, but still a reasonable amount. But it's left with a waste product. Its waste product is not ethanol, but this molecule, lactic acid. And you see again, what's happened here is the original six carbons have been broken down partly, but not completely. There are still three left in this molecule here uh, because it hasn't been able to fully burn it because there's not enough oxygen around. But that waste product from lactobacillus is terrifically useful for us because this production of lactic acid is what sours milk and turns milk into many of the products that many of us enjoy. Uh, yogurt, for example, some of the bacterially fermented cheeses, kefir and other drinks like that. Uh, this is a very important process and probably one that was discovered actually very early uh, during the kind of uh, first agricultural revolution of humanity uh, thousands of years ago. So in these processes, what we're doing as humans is harnessing some very fundamental energy chemistry of microbes for our own benefit. But I think I mean, if it stops here, this might be a pretty unexciting uh, story and, and a, probably a very unexciting lecture. Uh, but I think there's a lot more interesting chemistry to explore with microbes. And I want to take you through uh, some of that in the next part of the lecture. And actually, some of the most interesting chemistry for microbes comes not from their interactions with us, but from their interactions with other microbes. And that's because I think, like typical humans, we have a very human-centric view of the world. We tend to think of the world as you know, largely human with some other annoying creatures uh, scattered through. But that's not what it's like. Re in reality, uh, this is a completely microbial world, which is occasionally contaminated with big stuff like us. Um, but the vast majority of organisms in this world are microbes. And in many cases, they are living cheek by jowl, incredibly densely, in habitats which just promote competition. And, and one of those you can see very easily. You can stroll out into your garden or park. You can dig up a handful of soil. Um, and you will be witness to one of the most incredibly densely populated areas on the planet. The average gram of soil, depending on whether it's wet or dry or has a lot of nutrition or not, has between about a million and a billion bacteria. It has about a million to a billion fungal cells. And it has probably 10 times that number of viral particles. So when you hold that gram of soil in your hand, and just for, you know, for estimate, a teaspoon is about five grams, so we're talking about a fifth of a teaspoon of soil, has within it a number of microbes that is somewhere between the human population of London and the human population of the world. Okay? 
all living in that one gram of soil, very intensely, often competing for the same kind of nutrients. Um, and so what we all know is that when you have a crowded habitat, organisms tend to compete, and sometimes they do so in really quite unpleasant ways. Uh, and so many of these microbes have evolved mechanisms to fight off their competitors within the soil um, through chemical warfare, essentially. And that process <coughs> has turned out to be incredibly important for uh, humanity. So you can see the process here in this video. So this is um, one sort of bacteria. This is Bacillus, okay? Uh, commonly found sort of bacteria also in soil. Over here in this one, this is Streptomyces. These are a group of bacteria, a large group of bacteria found in soils and other habitats that are particularly good at this chemical warfare. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But this group is kind of you know, the record breaker in terms of really, really fancy microbial chemistry. And what you will see here is that as these two bacteria start to get close to each other, uh, this guy starts to provoke um, it, it will invoke its uh, armory um, and attack this guy over here, and you will see slowly but surely it starts to kill the bacillus on this side because it is releasing essentially chemical weapons directed against other bacteria in order to secure its position in the environment. This becomes interesting because, of course, chemicals that kill bacteria, or indeed other microbes, are pretty important for humans, because quite often we want to kill bacteria in your kitchen, in your liver, wherever they might happen to be where you don't want them. These chemicals are often what are, are either in themselves antibiotics or can be turned into antibiotics. And these, of course, uh, were the, at the heart of the early discovery of antibiotics. Uh, I'm sure you will know this is Alexander Fleming, uh, discoverer of penicillin. Um, and this is not his photograph, but a photograph of uh, penicillium, the fungus that he discovered, um, contaminating one of his bacterial plates. Um, and he made the very astute observation that where the fungus grew, the bacteria did not, and therefore surmised correctly that the fungus was releasing some kind of chemical that killed bacteria, that what we know, now know to be penicillin. A very early discovery of this kind of chemical warfare. So in the ensuing almost 100 years since Fleming's discovery, we have gone out and we have looked in environments, uh, not just soils, uh, marine environments, all sorts of interesting places, for other microbes that kill microbes in the hope of discovering chemicals that we can turn into antibiotics. And it has been very successful. People often talk about this crisis in antibiotics. And it's undoubtedly true that we are short of antibiotics at the moment. Um, but I think it's also worth stepping back and thinking, in less than 100 years, how many of these compounds we have discovered um, and how many millions of lives have been saved uh, through the discovery of these kind of chemical warfare uh, components. The point I want to make here in this lecture, though, is that the chemistry of these is often overlooked, but it's absolutely astounding. And let me give you two examples. Um, so here's one that I suspect many of you in this room and listening online will have used. This is chloramphenicol. Um, so it's an antibiotic that you're often prescribed, for example, for eye infections. You get it as an eye drop or um, for superficial infections, and you drop it on, um, and it's very effective against many uh, bacterial infections. This is a relatively simple bit of chemistry. So again, using the same diagrams we had earlier, there's some carbons in here, a nice little carbon ring, a bit of nitrogen, some chlorines. Not hugely complicated, although, I mean, I think you, know, you can underestimate this. If you were a kind of final year chemistry student, you popped into the lab one weekend and told your supervisor on Monday morning you'd knocked up chloramphenicol, I think they'd be pretty impressed, actually. Um, because, because this is not trivial chemistry, but nonetheless, a relatively simple but very effective antibiotic molecule. 
But now compare it to some other antibiotics, and in particular one called daptomycin, which is used uh, these days for systemic infections, so for serious life-threatening infections. Daptomycin is one of those antibiotics produced by the streptomyces, that group I just showed you who were killing the other bacillus. Um, and streptomyces produces daptomycin. And when you look at daptomycin, I think you can breathe a sigh of relief at not having to do this chemistry artificially, because this is what daptomycin looks like. It is an enormously elaborate molecule, lots of cyclic uh, structures and ring structures and interesting uh, bond dimensions in there. A really, really hugely piece, complicated piece of chemistry that's done by a single-celled organism in the soil. And in fact, if anyone was thinking, oh, this is actually not that complicated, um, the artificial synthesis of daptomycin is possible. Um, and I'll give you a quick uh, summary on the next two slides about how you do it. So you start here with a bit of an extension of the various peptide lengths. You recircularize them here. You cross-branch them. You extend it. Uh, never mind. And there's a whole second page of this. There is a lot of chemistry involved in producing daptomycin. Um, and this would require large teams of chemists large industrial fabrication facilities to do it, and yet a single-celled organism growing in the soil does it all the time without thinking about it. So I think this is a great example of how microbial chemistry is incredibly powerful, uh, really quite elaborate, um, and actually massively beneficial if we can harness it for our own good. So that's a positive story, um, but I wouldn't like you to go away thinking that all microbial chemistry is marvellous for humans, because of course quite a lot of it is not so beneficial. Um, and in particular, sometimes microbes direct their efforts at competition, not at other microbes, but at ourselves. And I think you know, one of the key examples of that is in the production of toxins. Okay? Lots of microbes produce toxins. I think it's really important, before talking more about these, to, to realise that they're not doing this just to be deliberately antagonistic. I don't think there are bacteria out there that think, you know, my aim in life is to eradicate humanity. Uh, they're doing this for one of two reasons. Either they're doing it because the molecule they're producing is directed at something else, for example, a soil predator um, that they're trying to kill, and it just happens to work on humans, or they're doing it because its symptoms in humans are beneficial. And you can think about that, for example, if you're a, a, an intestinal pathogen that is transmitted through a, what we usually call the oral fecal route very nicely. In other words, you know, people not washing their hands well after they go to the toilet. If you're that kind of bacterial pathogen, it's in your interest to get people to go to the toilet an awful lot. Uh, so it's not a surprise that intestinal bacteria often create diarrhoea, and they sometimes do so uh, by the production of toxins. But they're not doing it just to make your life miserable. Uh, they're doing it because it aids their spread and their persistence. So you know, the next time you're stuck on the toilet thinking, gosh, I, ha I wish I hadn't eaten that yesterday, have a little bit of sympathy for the poor bacteria that's trying to spread itself as you, as you do that. Um, so these toxins that are produced by all sorts of microbes are also, in their own right, some really interesting examples of fascinating chemistry. <clears throat> um, and I'm going to start with uh, perhaps the most uh, infamous, <coughs> uh, the infamous toxin out there. So this organism is Clostridium botulinum. Okay? It's a bacteria growing here on a plate. Uh, and unlike many of the other organisms we've talked about uh, before, this organism is an obligate anaerobe. It cannot grow in the presence of oxygen. So most of us don't encounter it. It's out in the environment all the time, but we don't really encounter it because we're obligate aerobes. We don't go to places where there's no oxygen. Um, and therefore, when we're encountering it, for example, in the soil, it's dormant. It looks like this, and it produces these little spores 
that you can see here that are not growing. They're not dead, but they're, they're, they're like seeds. They're immobile in the soil, and they're not harmful in their own right. And in that state, there's no problem with this bacteria. However, humans are very smart, and we have invented lots of interesting processes. And one of the great discoveries of, I guess, 100, 150 years ago was preser preservation of food. Um, and what we realised is that if you deprive food of oxygen, it often lasts longer, because many of the microbes that spoil food, that rot your apples or whatever else, require oxygen. So uh, many people came up with this clever idea that if you could keep your food in a way that there's no oxygen there, it will last longer. For example, if you put it into jars or you put it into cans, um, like this lady in the 1920s is doing here, uh, that's a very good way of preserving food. And they're right, it's a really good way of preserving food. Unfortunately, if you have not taken steps to remove this widespread bacteria from those conditions, however, now you've presented Clostridium with the perfect conditions to grow in, and it will happily do that inside your tin. And those of you um, who are perhaps old enough to remember when we didn't have such stringent controls on things might remember being warned, never eat a tin that's bulging. That's still very good advice, by the way. If you get a can that is bulging, just don't, don't go there. Um, because one of the reasons it's bulging might be because this bacteria that doesn't like oxygen is growing inside that tin. When that bacteria grows, it produces a range of seven toxins uh, that together are called uh, botulinum toxins. Um, each of them are very, very elegant. And this is a beautiful example of one of them. Um, this is a protein-based toxin. So what you're seeing here is a kind of skeletal diagram of the protein. The structure doesn't matter, other than I think it looks quite beautiful. And this is the most potent toxin, still the most potent toxin that we know of. So uh, uh, botulinum toxins A and B are the primary ones in, in humans. Um, and those toxins are so astronomically toxic, it's quite amazing. So in fact, the toxicity of these, the lethal dose, is about two nanograms per kilogram of body weight. So that's two billionths of a gram um, per kilogram of your body weight. So if you're like me and, you know, just about the right side of 100 kilos, um, that's a really small amount. In fact, I shall use my same prop to demonstrate how small. So if I dip my finger in here and get, I don't know, like three sugar crystals on here, if this was botulinum toxin, this would be more than enough to kill all of us in the room, okay? And in fact, this bag of sugar here, this was not sugar, but a one kilo bag of botulinum toxin, I would have in my hand more than enough poison to eradicate humanity worldwide easily. Okay? This is an incredibly potent toxin, one of the most dangerous toxins we know of, and yet it still has some beneficial purpose. Because it is this toxin that if you're worried about your wrinkles, you can get injected in very, very low dose into your face um, to improve your, your, or reduce your wrinkles. Uh, because, and the reason for that is th this is a very potent neurotoxin. The way it works is you have, obviously, in your body a nervous system composed of nerves. And if you imagine a nerve um, as being long and stringy, those of you who might remember this from school, you know, your typical nerve has a long axon and these kind of finger-like dendrites. And if you imagine, for example, the nerves that go down my leg, um, they're end-to-end -end like this. So my brain sends a command to my leg to move, um, and what happens is the nerve sends an impulse down. When it reaches the end of one nerve cell, it releases a neurotransmitter that crosses to the start of the next nerve cell and continues that signal down, and so on and so forth. So for my brain to tell my foot to move, there's a whole series of these end-to-end -end communications that happen. To cross that junction, they release what's called a neurotransmitter. So a molecule is released from this nerve, it crosses the gap and tells the next nerve, time to move the signal on. What this 
toxin does is it prevents the release of that neurotransmitter. So although my brain tells my leg it's time to move now, the nerve takes the signal down, but it cannot release that signal to the next nerve. And you end up with what's called flaccid paralysis. In other words, you're totally paralysed, and that's why you die, because all the nerves in your body fail to communicate this. But used very, very accurately under careful medical guidance and at very low dose, what you can do is use the same trick to paralyse individual nerves in your face. And for those of you who are like me, reaching a certain age where you look in the mirror and think, gosh, there's, there's more texture in that face than there used to be. Um, that texture is because I've got muscles that are kind of, you know, I like to think they're smiling all the time, but there are lots of muscles clenching in my face all the time, creating those wrinkles. If you paralyse them, your skin drops out smoothly, and you look years younger, allegedly. I haven't tried it, um, and it works very effectively. Of course, if you overdose, that's pretty disastrous. Um, but if used very, very cautiously, um, even a really potent toxin like this can have strong benefits. It's by far and away not the only microbial toxin. There are lots and lots of really interesting toxins um, produced by all sorts of microbes. So this, obviously, is the fruiting body of a microbe. This is the death cap mushroom. But if, as you know already, all mushrooms and toadstools have these microscopic underground mycelia that are growing, which are actually the bulk of the organism. This is just the fruit that comes at the top. The death cat mushroom is one of the leading causes of uh, poisoning by mushrooms because it looks superficially like many of the mushrooms that we eat. Um, but inside uh, this fruiting body is produced a rather uh, elegant chemical here, alpha-amanatin. Again, you see this really quite elaborate chemistry here. Um, and this is an extremely potent toxin. This particular one uh, works by blocking a very early step when you want to produce proteins. So when you want to, for example, express uh, from your DNA, a protein that you're going to need for something, cell division, for example, this toxin blocks that process and so is very lethal because you essentially shut down your cellular protein production uh, machinery very early on. Much less elegant to look at, but actually even more insidious, this little chap here, the black dots, this is ergot, uh, claviceps purpurea. This is also a fungus, uh, not quite as spectacular as this one, that grows on some grain crops. Um, and this has been historically a big cause of uh, food problems for humanity because this fungus produces a toxin called ergotamine, which looks like this. Uh, and this is a toxin that, again, is uh, affecting your nervous system. It causes uh, severe paralysis of the nervous uh, system, and it leads to what used to be thought of as a disease that was called St. Anthony's Fire, actually, because one of the very unpleasant symptoms of agoutamine poisoning is an is a appalling burning sensation all over your body as your nerves essentially go into overdrive and, and tell you that uh, very bad things are happening. Um, both of these toxins, highly specific, really uh, very detailed molecularly, and a really smart bit of chemistry done by a microbe. These toxins are relatively blunt tools, in the sense that if you give someone a uh, botulinum toxin, you know, it's, there's a one-way ticket and it's not going to get better. But one of the really interesting things about some microbial toxins is their precision or their combination. Not all toxins are always toxic, for example. Um, and this is one of my uh, favourite examples. This is a, it's a recently changed its name. This is Coprinopsis atramentaria, I think, uh, which is an ink cap fungus. Um, and you can see why it's called ink cap, because it has this kind of black, uh, sticky uh, surface. This guy produces another toxin, coprine, up here, a fairly simple molecule, actually. Um, and on its own, this is not toxic at all. You can go out and eat these. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can, uh, and you'll be perfectly safe. Unless you choose to eat these in conjunction with a nice glass of wine or a beer, uh, because this is a very neat chemical. It is not in itself toxic, 
but it is a very potent blocker, inhibitor, of acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme that you need to detoxify the poisonous products that are created by ethanol in your body. So if you drink on its own, you're fine. If you eat this on its own, you're fine. If you put the two together, this molecule stops you being able to detoxify this. And what was previously a harmless pint of beer is now potentially a lethal uh, source of poison. That combinatorial chemistry, if you like, that, that use of a toxin with some other thing is kind of a common theme in microbiology. Um, and I think one of the neatest examples of that uh, comes from a bacteria. Um, and this bacteria... <coughs> um, is the green thing here. So this is, it has a beautiful name, Vibrio parahemolyticus. Uh, and it is this little green chap that is responsible, if anyone has suffered this, for acute shellfish poisoning. So this is the thing that often people have had, you know, prawns or oysters or something, um, and, and, you know, within a few hours, you know that something was not right. Um, you have serious, serious diarrhoea, and you're in a bit of a miserable way. Um, and that is often because this organism, which lives in marine environments has set up home instead in your intestine. And what Vibrio parahemolyticus does is it sticks to your intestinal cells. So here are intestinal cells in red. Um, it sticks to them, and then it injects into your cells a series of proteins uh, that it needs to do what it needs to do to replicate, but unfortunately, which then leads to uh, quite a lot of uh, damage and death of your intestinal cells, which is why you get this you know, horrendous diarrhoea as your intestinal layer is stripped off, essentially. To do that, like any kind of good doctor, uh, Vibrio needs a syringe to inject things with, and it creates a syringe, uh, which you can just about see here. This is an electron microscope image of the syringes. They're called type 3 secretion system. And it looks a little bit like a syringe, I think. You can, you can agree it looks like the kind of thing you might want, a needle that you might want to inject something with. These are very complicated molecular machines that assemble on the surface of the bacteria and then inject proteins into human cells. A really neat piece of biology, but actually a really expensive piece of biology to create if you're a bacteria. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of production to make one of these things. So you don't actually want to do that all the time. If you're sat in your prawn out in the North Atlantic um, and you don't need to do this at all, you don't want to be wasting energy producing a needle you're never going to need. And so to avoid that waste, what Vibrio has done has combined this very elaborate toxin system with a really neat trigger. And the trigger is um, a molecule here, another protein, VNTR, which sits on the surface of the bacteria. And it's a sensor, and it's looking for something. And what it's looking for is a tiny little green molecule that you see here. This is a bile salt, a human bile salt. And these are the things that you produce in your intestine to help with uh, uh, to help with digestion, essentially. Uh, you'll, you know, those of you who like a bit of Shakespeare will, will um, remember all these quotes about bile, as in the, kind of, you know, the black, nasty, noxious stuff in your intestine. Um, but bile salts are a really important part of helping us to digest our food. What Vibrio has done here is it's realised that bile salts are not present out in the environment. They are present in intestines. So if you wait until you see a bile salt, then you know you're in the right place to produce this really expensive machine and generate all those toxins. So it doesn't do any of this until it senses a bile salt in the first place, a very neat bit of trickery. And this, I think, is also kind of an interesting opportunity for us medically, because essentially what we're saying is that until it senses a bile salt, 
this bacteria is harmless. It's not producing a toxin. So if we could, for example, develop a way to trick it into not realising that it's in the human intestine, you might be able to eat even contaminated shellfish without any problem at all, because they go straight through without producing the toxin in the first place. I think that's a long way off, but an interesting example of how learning a bit of chemistry might help us deal with a kind of real-world problem. So we've talked a bit about toxins, we've talked about some of the beneficial molecules like antibiotics that microbes produce. For the last few minutes, what I want to do is turn our attention to uh, some of the things that they can create, some of the materials they can create, and, and some of the potential, I think, which is huge for future chemistry using microbes. Um, and the reason for this is because microbes, we are only just scratching the surface of the kind of chemistries that are out there. I mentioned before that you know, the whole field of antibiotics is only about 100 years old. In that time, we have discovered tens of molecules save millions of lives um, just by essentially looking in soil. Today, we have all these amazing techniques. We have mass genomics. You can take seawater, you can sequence all the DNA in seawater and work out what's there. We can take human intestines and we can look at the kind of feces you have in there and realise that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of species living in human intestines that we have never previously identified. So I think it's reasonable to assume that if there are hundreds, thousands, probably tens of thousands of undiscovered species, there are also hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of undiscovered chemistries out there, some of which might be useful uh, to humanity. And uh, I've got some confidence in saying that because uh, we know it's starting to be true. So, for example, a few years ago, people discovered uh, some microbial chemistry that has the potential to solve uh, one of the largest problems of our time, that of plastic waste. Uh, so this is a typical image that I'm sure all of you are now familiar with of you know, the, the mass of plastics, both macroplastics like these and microplastics, the ones you can't see, in seawater, in soils, in pristine environments. Um, and that is because... Plastics, by and large, are not biodegradable. And in particular, a big problem one is PET, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, polyethylene tetraphthalate, which is the plastic that is used to make disposable water bottles and those kind of things. Um, it's a really, really useful material, but unfortunately, it doesn't break down and, and floats and accumulates in, in biodiverse systems. So what we need is a way to get rid of this, Okay. And it turns out that some bugs have already realised this. So this is Idionella. Uh, this is a bacteria discovered just a few years ago, actually, uh, which thus far is one of the very few organisms that seems to have the capacity to break down these kind of plastics. At the moment, it is very slow. It does do it, which is great, but nowhere near at the rate that you might need to deal with the world's plastic mountain. Um, but actually, just in the last few years, people have looked at ways to grow this organism differently, for example. Um, and in doing so, they have uh, discovered ways that you can accelerate its breakdown of plastic many times. And so I think it's reasonable uh, to assume that within perhaps a few years from now, we might have a decent microbiological solution uh, to this plastic mountain. I mean, I should point out, this is not an excuse to throw your bottles away, uh, because clearly there is still an issue of how you get this to where you need it to deal with the plastic. Uh, but nonetheless, an opportunity here, provided by a microbe rather than a human chemist, for dealing with one of humanity's big pollution problems. This is potentially an even bigger pollution problem. Radioactive waste, okay, when it's like this, and neatly stored and carefully archived, it's not so much of a problem. But as we all know, when it leaks, it's potentially a massive disaster. Um, and particularly when it's dissolved in watercourses and can spread, even low-level radiation can be very, very harmful. 
Uh, and yet, just a few years ago, uh, people discovered this rather neat organism. This is Geobacter. Okay? And Geobacter um, really likes all sorts of interesting heavy metals, including uranium, for example. <coughs> uh, and what people discovered was that if you put Geobacter in soils where there is some uranium, it will use some of the energy from that uranium and turn it into a uranium salt. And in doing so, it precipitates it, it makes it insoluble, and it drops out of the watercourse. So you could add Geobacter to a contaminated area of soil. It wouldn't get rid of your uranium problem, but it would stop it spreading and, and moving beyond that area. That was already quite a neat trick, but what has materialised in recent years is something even more exciting, I think. So you can see in this image that Geobacter produces these long fibres here. It is those fibres that it uses to capture metals in soils or in water like uranium. It does that for its own purpose, its own energy gathering purpose. But as it does that, this fiber becomes electrically conductive. It's like a little copper wire, or in this case, a uranium wire. And it can do that for lots of different metals. And in fact, it can turn itself into a little tiny electrical circuit. Um, and this is something that people are very excited by because the scale here is absolutely tiny. This thing is producing electrical circuits at the kind of scale we need for things like transistor circuits, for cell phones, for computers, for satellites. And so maybe there's an opportunity that we could harness Geobacter to create electronics at a scale that we can't currently do using man-made techniques. That process of if you like, electronic manipulation, this interface between biology and technology, is an area that's really, really exploding and very exciting. I want to share another example, actually, a very recent example of something that is, is similar in that vein. So I suspect many of you will have heard of graphene. Graphene is this uh, wonder material that won the Nobel Prize some years ago. Um, and essentially, one of the cutest things about this, as people might know, is that it was originally discovered through a kind of very sort of lab-based experiment using sellotape and pencils, uh, because graphene is essentially single layers of graphite, the thing that is in pencil lead. It's not quite that simple, though, because graphene uh, layers typically oxidise. They have a lot of oxygen groups on the outside, and that means they're not very good at doing all the electronic things you want them to do. So to make graphene usable by humans, what we do is we take graphene oxide and we have to reduce it. We have to get rid of those oxygen groups. At the moment, we do that using a lot of really noxious chemicals. You have to treat this thing in, in quite toxic, quite unpleasant conditions to remove some of these oxygens and turn it into this usable Form. Uh, it works, but it's not great. Turns out, though, as with many examples tonight, uh, that bacteria got there an awfully long time before we did. This little bacteria here is Schuonella. Okay, it's a marine bacteria, and it turns out that it's able to do this reaction without any need for any noxious chemicals at all. Uh, and in fact, you can see this very nice uh, graphic from Anne, uh, <coughs> Anne Mayer, who did some of this work, where essentially you can mix your bacteria with your graphene oxide, it will do all the heavy chemistry for you and turn out the other end a very nice uh, graphene, uh, uh, reduced gra form of graphene that you can use in your electronics. And you can see, in fact, here, so this is the graphene oxide that you can't use. You need to turn it from this orange colour to this black colour. And you can see that if you do it either chemically or microbially, there's actually no difference. And so here is a process where we can create a very useful man-made material without using these environmentally damaging chemicals all by virtue of a bacterium. 
So my final example before I close, though, is the potential, I think, the potential here. So, so far, everything I've talked about are, if you like, natural processes. These are things that bacteria and fungi have evolved in order to be able to deal with problems they have that might also be useful to us, for example, the production of antibiotics. But what about when you combine the kind of natural diversity of microbiology with some of the kind of human potential we have, and in particular the potential for genetic engineering? And one of the things that a lot of bacteria are very good at is accepting genes from other organisms and doing stuff with them. They have done this for millions of years, actually. There's nothing new about genetic engineering. Bacteria are always picking up bits of DNA from the environment and doing stuff with them. Uh, but humans have learned to harness that. And so you can produce in bacteria all sorts of interesting things uh, that, we, that they are not normally going to make. So insulin, for example, if you're diabetic, your insulin is probably coming from a bacteria that is producing that. Um, and one of the nicest examples, I think, is this final one here. So silk, spider silk, is a material, as I'm sure you know, that has huge potential. Enormously strong, really light, biodegradable, all sorts of benefits. If only we could make this in a way that was, didn't require spiders, uh, which are tricky to work with, that would be great. And indeed, a group in Japan has recently done that. Um, they have taken uh, this uh, organism here, Rhoda volume, and they have expressed in this a spider protein that allows it to produce spider silk. Um, it's not quite as elegant as the spider silk that you see here, uh, but this is a single fibre of that spider silk. It's very early days, but uh, that silk looks actually and feels quite similar to the kind of classical spider silk. But now, of course, you're producing it in a bacteria. And there are two big benefits there. One, this thing is photosynthetic. So you don't need to feed it lots of energy. You don't need to feed it flies. Um, you can grow it in sunlight, and it will produce for you this silk. Secondly, you can... There is no limit to the scale here, right? You can grow bacteria in litre vessels, 100 litre vessels, massive factories. You could produce huge quantities of this silk from those organisms for use in all sorts of interesting man-made materials. And I think that really is the point I want to end on with the excitement and the potential of this for the future. Uh, and with the proposition, really, that maybe in 10, 20 years from now, um, when we think chemical fabrication, we will be thinking less about large chemical factories like this and more like biological fermentation places uh, like this is my proposition. Come back in 20 years and tell me if I was right. Thank you very much. Professor May. Um, we do have time for a couple of questions. So what I'll do first is I'll take a few from the online audience and then I'll open it up to the floor. Um, so the first one is a little bit back to the chemistry at the start. Um, where does the phosphorus in ATP come from? Oh, there's always a chemist online, isn't there? That's a rule for life. Uh, yeah, so when I said it was very oversimplified chemistry, that's right. So phosphorus, in fact, there are, there are far more elements than just these three that are obviously essential for life. Um, phosphorus in those cases, so for us, phosphorus is coming from our food. Um, if you're a photosynthetic plant, you're ga gathering phosphate from the soil. And those of you who might have seen my first lecture, we talked a bit about this symbiosis that, between a fungus and a plant, where the fungus is donating phosphate, so phosphorus to the plant, to then use. So yeah, you need phosphate, you need lots of other things, uh, potassium is another example, from other sources, either the soil if you're a plant, rocks if you're a microbe, or food if you're a human. Um, but thank you for picking me up on my <laughs> oversimplification, whoever that was online. Thank you. Um, we do have one um, about microbes and how they break down plastic. Mm -hmm. So could you just tell us a bit more on the actual process involved? 
Yeah, so it's, it's still largely unknown, actually, how the, the full details of the kind of chemical process. It looks like... So, so plastics are actually very useful feedstock, if you like. Anyone who... I don't do this at home, but if you've burnt plastic inadvertently, you know it actually burns really well. It's a hydrocarbon, right? It's an oil-derived thing like petrol or diesel. So there's a lot of energy in plastic. Um, and so in some senses, it's not surprising that some microbes want to use that energy. So they're breaking down the plastic in the same way that we break down that sugar or something else for their own energy use. How they do it and what they produce at the other end is still a bit vague. And one of the big challenges that we have is making sure that what they're producing from it is not in itself harmful harmful. So you obviously don't want to break down plastic into two equally harmful things and then diffuse away. Um, and so that's kind of watch this space answer, I think, for that. Um, do we have any questions in the audience? My colleague's just bringing you a mic. The plastics, uh, sorry, it's just thank you for a very good talk, by the way. Uh, it's just a follow-on from the plastics piece there. So how do you mitigate against, as these bugs are developed, which can do it at a great rate, if they... If, if they're not used in that context and they're just prevalent in the environment, surely they can degrade structural plastics and containers and things which are needed to do their job right now. So how do, they, how do you get one thing without the other? Yeah, that's a very good question. So in the specific case of Idionella, so the organism that does this, it's actually not a very widespread organism, so, uh, which is why we don't get, you know, you don't go to your supermarket and discover all the water bottles collapsing uh, because of this. Um, but I think that's a valid concern when we start to think about if you're going to engineer this. So, for example, if you're going to take that ability and put it into a much more widespread bacteria that might be useful for all sorts of things, you'd want to be pretty sure that if you're going to release that to the environment, for example, that it's not about to destroy the plastic industry and, and civilization as we know it. Um, but I think in terms of why we don't see more, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, my guess is the, the straightforward answer that plastics are, are relatively new. Evolutionarily speaking, they're incredibly new, right? We've only had plastic for about a century or so. Um, and so there has not been time for organisms to evolve. You could play that tape forwards and think, okay, what about a thousand years from now? Actually, will we see that bacteria have diversified and there's now a whole bunch of really good bacteria that are a problem because they are feeding off all these man-made uh, plastics that we've created, which is a plausible scenario. I guess I won't be around in a thousand years to find out whether I'm right or not, but it's, it's certainly a possibility. Bacteria being able to break down plastic. So is it a... A safe enough assumption to uh, think that uh, we would also be able to use some microorganisms to break down all the oil spills that have been happening in the seas and oceans. Because since plastics are also oil, uh, natural gas and oil-derived uh, products. Yep. Yeah, that's, that, that is a very safe assumption. And I, the reason I can say that is that we actually already know of some organisms that are capable of um, breaking down petroleum products like oil slicks. And there's been a lot of interest, actually, in, in two areas. So one is in terms of um, natural organisms that might be used, for example, in oil spill in the ocean to degrade the oil. Um, and so Gia, back to that one I talked about with the, the metal uh, metals also actually has a second ability to degrade some petroleum products. Um, the second aspect of that is it can also sometimes be a problem. So in oil tankers, you can sometimes get microbial contamination of the oil. Um, and that's actually a real nightmare because it's then growing on the petrol and, and causing all sorts of problems. So a bit like the, the answer around plastics, there's a kind of yin and yang there. Um, I think the, the key question for us really it will be, how you get that activity in a way that is controllable to remove it where it's a problem, but not to, you know, inadvertently remove petrol engines. Although, of course, actually, there may be good reasons to remove petrol engines for other purposes. I was interested in the geobacter and the comments you were making about uranium. And I was wondering if there was any work to look at recovery of 
rare earths and transition metals from electronic waste? Yes, there is. There's, there's been a lot of interest in that, um, uh, how you might use... So one of the things bacteria are really good at is taking stuff that's very, very diffuse and concentrating it because they want it in their cells. Um, and so one of the most interesting examples I've seen of that, actually, is from uh, catalysts in cars. So all of us who, who drive cars, you, know, you have a catalytic converter. There are lots of relatively rare metals in that catalyst um, that, are, that are helping to break down the, the, you know, the dangerous fumes that you're releasing from your exhaust. Over the lifetime of a vehicle, those uh, metals are being deposited in your exhaust fumes onto roads. So roads have actually a reasonably economically viable amount of these rare metals on their surface, but you can't get them because they're spread across the road network. There's been some really interesting work using bacteria that are particularly good at harvesting these metals with the idea that you might be able to, for example, wash on your bacteria. Um, and then there are some bacteria, for example, that are magnetic. And so you could combine those traits. What about if you could wash on your bacteria, leave them for a day, and then come back with your magnets, scoop them all up, and voila, you've got your palladium or your, you know, uh, whatever the, the rare, earth, uh, rare metal is that you want, um, nicely concentrated. I think there's lots of potential there. Um, also for mining, people are interested about whether you could do this in a much more, much less damaging way. Could you mine by putting bacteria in and then pulling them back out instead of drilling massive holes? Um, so yes, lots of potential. Pretty early days, but quite exciting, I think. So uh, I had a question. You talked about geobacter. So uh, in that, uh, you talked about how it can be used as electrolytic cells. How uh, uranium and other heavy metals can be used uh, to as the thread that is in the geobacter acts as a copper wire, etc. So these cells would not be uh, most probably won't won't be rechargeable because since the uh, heavy metals would be converted into their salts. So what uh, if like? You can shed light on how these can be used as viable cells in our normal lives. Right, that's a, that's a very good question, so, and, and, and very astute bit of chemistry. So to deposit the metal, you need to do something with it, like turn it into a salt, which might in itself make it less use. At the moment, the way people are thinking about these, I think, is not as a living electronic circuit. I don't think people are envisaging, although actually it's an interesting concept that you'd have your kind of live bacteria. But what you might do, a little bit akin to the previous answers, you might get them to synthesise these fibres, you could then harvest the fibres, a bit like we harvest, you know, uh, silk from cocoons or something, you know, cotton, and then, you, um, and then you could treat it in a way that might remove the salt, for example, and make it usable. Ultimately, I could imagine what you could do, possibly, is tweak the biology of the microbe so it doesn't even do that annoying bit in the first place, but that's much further down the line. But even now, I mean, we're used to doing this. A lot of the, um, the products that we use from microbes already when they're produced by the microbe, are not immediately usable. You have to do something to them. Uh, but what you have to do to them is much less onerous than what you would have had to do to create them from scratch in the first place. There's, a, there's an old uh, wives' tale from my part of the world, which uh, it goes that uh, uh, phosphates are in fish. And if you eat a lot of fish, that's good for the brain. Is there any, is there any evidence of that? <laughs> I feel like I'm on thin ice here, advisor. So, uh, so, so in terms of phos so phosphate, absolutely important. You can't live without phosphate, so that's quite important. Um, how much phosphate you need in your diet and whether you should eat fish is up for grabs, I would say. Uh, I mean, separately from that, the, the, the evidence for oily fish, some oily fish in your diet being very healthy, is pretty strong. Um, but in terms of, for example, microbial-based phosphate to stimulate diets, I mean, there's lots of interest in, as you know, in, in sort of probiotics, for example, in microbes as dietary supplements. It'd be really interesting to look at that. Probably not for phosphate, which we get quite a lot of already, but for some of the trace elements that you need in diets, 
lots of interest about whether you might be able to harness microbes uh, to do that. And I think old wives' tales, I think, you know, or, or folk legend, if you like, I think are a really interesting source of kind of questions that can be answered by science in that context. Absolutely. I think you, you partly answered my question, which was posed by someone else. Um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Generally, in history, when we tinker with nature, there are unforeseen consequences. And a lot of the, the, the solutions that you've, you've put forward are solutions to problems because we've tinkered with nature. So plastic isn't a problem until you really put it on a, an industrial scale. When we start deploying things that are at a very small level that you can't see, the risks become huge because we can't see what's happening. So what's your view on, on, on us tinkering with nature at this very small level? And what are the potentially unforeseen risks in the future? That is a lovely question. Um, have we got another couple of hours? Uh, so so uh, what do I think about it? I mean, so you're absolutely right that a lot of the problems that the world faces today are problems of humanity's creation, right? In fact, not just plastic. I mean, you could argue that uranium waste is also our, our own production problem. Um, that notwithstanding, though, we have the problem, we've got to fix it. So I'm, I'm kind of a big believer in, in doing both. So you absolutely have to change behaviours. So climate change is a great example. You know, we absolutely have to reduce carbon emissions, period, full stop. We also need to do something about the fact we already have far too much CO2. Um, and so we're going to need some technology solutions there. Uh, so I, I think so the short answer is I think I believe in both. I totally take your point. I mean, I think with any kind of intervention, particularly an, event, an intervention which might ultimately become out of your control. So if you're going to do something in the the wider environment, a release to the environment, you want to be as sure as you possibly can be that you've mitigated all those risks. Um, and I think, you know, in the UK, we have a pretty robust system for that. That's not true of all countries, actually. And so there is a big challenge here about kind of international agreements on when you might do something, when you might not. Um, climate change is a great example of that, right? It doesn't matter if, you know, half the world reduces its emissions, if the other half keeps growing them, we're still in the same problem. Um, so I think that, that question of how you address the dangers and the benefits of playing with nature, playing with nature, it's really important. Uh, what I would say, though, I think is that that is not a reason to not do it. I think there's a lot of potential out there, and I think a lot of our kind of existentially challenging problems that we face can be solved with these kind of technologies if they're appropriately applied. So I would, I would urge, I guess, from my position, go forwards, but go forwards cautiously. Um, do they, when they're all in that vat, do they produce fibres, or how do you get it to become fibrous? Yeah, so, so, so in terms of the silk production, so the, the early, and the, I should hate to now, these very early uh, days, so the, the, what's being produced in the minute are very short fibres. They are fibres, but they're not, you know, you can't, you can't go rock climbing with one of these silk fibres yet. Um, but I think there's two things there. I mean, one is that you might be able to kind of weave these into much larger, even small fibres. You know, cotton is a small fibre, but you can produce pretty impressive stuff. Um, but secondly, I think, you know, this is a very early step and that we could end up creating microbes that produce far longer fibres, potentially for use in things like ropes and Kevlar vests and so on and so forth. Well, thank you all for your questions. Please join us on Wednesday, the 8th of February, for Professor May's next lecture on microbial record breakers. Thank you again, Professor May. And thank, thank you very much.